This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, this is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I'm here today with Dr. Bill Nance. Hello. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Nate Jennings. Hello. And we're here to talk about a very simple concept in in armies, uh, pretty much in any period in history, um, but one that I think deserves uh, some attention paid to it, and that is cavalry. Um, So I'm an academic historian, of course, um, but Dr. Nance and Colonel Jennings, if you guys could give your backgrounds, both academic and professional, because I think it'll help. Yeah, hello. Uh, So I started my military uh, career as a 19 Delta Cav Scout in the 2nd Dragoons, uh, as well as serving in a variety of armored forces uh, during my early uh, early career. And then, uh, yeah, this is Dr. Bill Nance. Uh, I started out with uh, actually a heavy armor formation, uh, the 1st Battalion, 68th Armor, and then did a uh, company command with a tank company in the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment back when it was a actual... Uh, organized, trained, and equipped uh, cavalry regiment, fought in Mosul with them, and then uh, was a uh, cavalry squadron uh, operations officer uh, and a cavalry squadron executive officer uh, for the 1st Squadron, 1st Cavalry Regiment, which was the Brigade Cavalry Squadron for the 2nd Brigade, 1st Armored Division. Okay, so both of you are are both academic historians and um, Colonel Jennings, in your case, current practitioners, Dr. Nance, in your case, recent practitioners. So let's start off with the very basis, the very basics. What is cavalry? Well, I would define cavalry as the mounted arm of a combined arms force in modern terms. Uh, has superior, uh, always has had superior mobility to the other arms, such as infantry, artillery, engineers. Uh, and as history, as, as the evolution of warfare progressed, we can add a greater firepower, greater protection to that mobility to create a, a truly unique arm that has uh, can provide very distinctive advantages to, to a, uh, a combined arms force. Also, some distinctive liabilities in terms of sustainment and sometimes getting themselves in trouble that's hard to get them out of. And, and I'll take that definition and kind of uh, put my own little spin on it a little bit too, which is Cavalry is more of a mission set than a particular type of mount or equipment. And this is and this is very specifically an American perspective. And we can talk about this a little bit as we go. Uh, but cavalry conducts some very specific things that other organizations typically don't do. So for instance, infantry is in the line of battle. Their job is to seize and hold ground and uh, be that be that kind of mud foot on the battlefield. Uh, artillery, we all know their job is to blow the other guy up uh, from, from afar. Uh, aviation, of course, they do many things, fire support, transportation. Um, and but, blowing people up. And blowing people up, that is a true statement. But cavalry, their specific role on the battlefield is reconnaissance, security, economy of force, liaison, and what they uh, what they do with those roles is is that they are the people that uh, to kind of put a joke onto it is is that the cavalry is the organization that the ar- that the protected force 
that the cavalry belongs to. They're the stick that that protective force is using to, to poke into the bushes to see what comes out. And the joke is, is that sometimes it's hard on the stick, but, uh, but that's why we get to wear the cool hats. Um, but, but that's kind of what, and then uh, the other roles, liaison economy force, that is because, as Colonel Jennings pointed out, cavalry has the mobility and the firepower to be in many places very rapidly and move around the battlefield and possessing that inherent mobility more than infantry. Yeah, so, so you've touched on a lot of um, um, aspects of cavalry that we're going to dive more deeply into, particularly with the, the modern American view of what cavalry is and it does, um, which is not always the way cavalry is used in the past, which is an interesting discussion point. Uh, so let's start at the very beginning. Uh, I, I think you know the origins of warfare are very difficult to suss out. It's probably reasonable to assume that warfare started when somewhat you know organized societies started sending out raiding parties and that kind of thing. I mean, even some animals do that, right? Um, but as soon as we have people who can use animals, whether those animals are horses or mules. Then we now have two branches of fighters, right? We have people who are on foot and people who are on horseback. And uh, at that point, we start to see the very earliest divergence in, in specialization, if you will. Um, and I, I want to read a, a quote from a, a book that I'm, I'm quite familiar with from my period. It's pretty much the closest the late 18th century French army has to doctrine. It's Guibert's General Essay on Tactics. Um, in nations without discipline and without enlightenment, the cavalry is the premier arm of the armies. In those where discipline and enlightenment have made progress, it becomes the second, but the second regarded as necessary, important, and often decisive, and consequently as requiring to be carried to the greatest perfection possible. So what do you make of that idea? What do you make of the idea that people who are born on horses, you know, migrants, steppe peoples, cavalry is, is pretty much the only arm, um, but in armies that look more like, uh, you know, organized Western European societies in the early modern period, it's one of the two arms. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Because uh, if you're fighting out on the steppe, you're not going, uh, one piece of step looks, is pretty much worth the same as the next piece of step. Uh, there, there's very, there's very little key terrain to, to worry. There is key terrain out there, river crossings, water points, what, what have you. But most of it is just, the ground itself for the most part is fairly useless in a tactical sense. So with that said, mobility is key. You uh, want to have the ability to move around someone and fight them. And so societies that start out on the plains and have access to horses, that is what they're naturally going to gravitate towards. And oh, by the way, in the modern uh, terminology, it's much the same way. If you are on an open step land and you, have, and you are mechanized or motorized and your opponent is not, you have an advantage. What I think uh, what Guibert is specifically talking about in that particular case is that when you get into kind of Western European or Western Europe, which is really where his uh, head's at for the most part, he's talking about the you know the cockpit of Europe, you know, France, Belgium, Netherlands, yeah, part the of Rhine, the Rhineland, Italy, all that yeah. kind of stuff, is that there are parts there where horses are very useful and very effective, but there's uh, there's parts where uh, uh, nothing's going to beat a line of uh, two deep or three deep infantry armed with bayonets putting out measured volleys of fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you have uh, 
broach an interesting aspect of uh, the relationship between horse peoples and uh, we could say more uh, diverse or complex societies, nation states, dynasties, kingdoms that have uh, what we might think of as combined arms armies or multi-arm, all-arm armies. Um, and sometimes you see uh, war fighting relationships between these. So we can talk about the, how the Cossacks supported the, the Imperial Russian army. Uh, or sometimes the, fought them. Or fought them or stole from them. or But quite useful in the War of 1812 uh, in Russia. Uh, I, in my own studies, I've looked at how uh, the early Texas Rangers uh, served as volunteer cavalry in support of the U.S. Army. Because um, what you find is some of these uh, more modern and, and industrialized nation states um, choose not to fund uh, and equip cavalry forces because they're expensive. And that's the story of the early American Republic. But, by the way, an aristocrat theme to that that was distasteful. Um, you know, in the, in the old world, cavalry was often used by despots to maintain control. So the American uh, Republic starves its cavalry arm. And so uh, up through the Civil War, the majority of the, com of the uh, mounted arm support is, is actually militia and volunteers. Yeah, Colonel Chang's talking about your research on the frontier and whatnot. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Because in a previous conversation we'd had, you talked about how the original Texas Anglo uh, settlers of Texas had come from pretty much a very Tennessee uh, kind of Midwest settler uh, orient of dismounted infantry fighting uh, with long rifles and how that then evolved when they were faced with the uh, the threat and the the challenges of the Comanche nation. Yeah, this is an interesting story where uh, you have a robust ranger tradition on the East Coast, Eastern Seaboard, it leads the the uh, the Anglo settler advance across Appalachia uh, into the Trans Mississippi, um, and these are what we would call today something like commandos or special forces types, uh, basically guys who can co-opt and emulate in Indian warfare practices that are are quite effective, uh, and so these are the guys that settle Texas. So think Davy Crockett going down to Texas, if he doesn't die at the Alamo, he probably becomes a mounted Texas Ranger and ad adopts cavalry practices. Um, and so that's what happens. They, uh, they explicitly take this word Ranger and, uh, and apply it to Comanche methods, uh, among other tribes. Um, also similar to what had happened with Spanish settlements, uh, where they adopted something they called um, uh, flying companies and basically a regular cavalry. Uh, but essentially, the, the Lower Great Plains is a mounted warfare arena. And the Anglo-Texans that colonize, uh, initially under Mexican supervision, they have to adapt or die. And they adapt. And they adopt. They, uh, they become a horse people. So let's talk about some of the basic uh, principles and trade-offs that we have. As, as you know, for, for most of human organized warfare history, we basically have two branches, right? We have infantry, men on foot and cavalry, men on horse, or in some cases, other animals that are similar, right? So I mean, think camels. Elephants. Middle East, elephants, <laughs> right. So you mentioned one reason why you don't just put everybody on a horse, which is cost. And that's prohibitive in societies that are not horse societies, right? Step peoples. Well, let's go the other direction then. If cavalry is expensive, and it takes time to train the horses, to train the people, et cetera, et cetera. Why do we even want cavalry? What's, what's the purpose of having horse cavalry? Uh, it's the mobility. Uh, in, in a pre-industrial time, before 
uh, combustible engine, rail. Uh, it is the fastest way to both uh, position forces, so think mounted infantry, riding to an advantageous position, getting off their horses, and fighting in a place uh, that could end up being a turning movement that the enemy didn't expect, but also just mounted operations where they're fighting from horseback, doing reconnaissance from horseback. Uh, that's that's going to be an advantage, an asymmetric advantage to the force that has that against an enemy who doesn't, or just has more qualitative or quantitative aspects of cavalry. Um, and this is kind of the emergence of combined arms operations where it's a chess game. Each kind of arm, combat arm, infantry, cavalry, artillery, engineers, and so on, has a distinctive capability, a strength and weakness, and it's how you array that against your enemy. And cavalry is one of those distinctive pieces on the board. One of the things that a cavalry brings you is, particularly now we're going back uh, perhaps even farther, is there's nothing quite so intimidating as a big guy on a big animal coming at you very, very quickly, meaning to do you harm. And this is the genesis of the, you can laugh at my pronunciation, but the cuirassier, the lancers, uh, ulans, for, to use the German approach. Um, that, that is the idea of shock cavalry, and that goes all the way back to the idea of mounted knights uh, during, uh, during the medieval era. So let's talk about this, because you both have a, an yeah. intimate experience of combat. So what is the, the human and the moral value of a very large animal that can move very quickly on infantry formations. It scares the crud out of the uh, the uh, out of a out of a poorly trained soldier. Actually, to be quite frank, it still scares them. Just the difference is that a disciplined soldier who has training will typically stand if he has pr if he's properly equipped. This is, of course, the value of the bayonet, right? This is why you see uh, throughout the I believe it's the sixteenth. Uh, 17th and 18th centuries, where the uh, where the uh, cre where the bayonet actually becomes a thing, where now you don't have to have guys with pikes to protect against the cavalry, mm -hmm. and guys shooting, you can just combine it into one. But the idea being is is that it is a it's a terror weapon almost more than anything else like that. Also, the sheer fact of the matter is is that you take all of that weight, and physics is a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so if uh, so if you've got the your uh, an infantry formation, they're in a line or they're in a square or whatever formation they are, and you just ride right into that, it is going to move them out of the way. Now, you might do bad things to you too, but that's why you have more of your friends along for the ride. Um, but the idea being is is that it is, so there's a huge moral factor there uh, where the, uh, the uh, poorly trained soldiers won't stand. And uh, as Colonel Jennings was mentioning, this is a uh, how a crowd control methodology, right? If you, you see this in New Orleans, right, where the police are on horseback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like if you're going to, if you, you can use a horse to literally just physically move someone around as needed, or if you want to uh, use, a, if you're going to ride down a group of uh, people who are uh, protesting a street or something like that, you just put up a bunch of horses and you you charge. Um, and but it's also just the, the physical factor too. And then you add also the tactical mobility. Now, interesting fun facts is we start getting a little bit forward in modern technology. You find at operational and strategic speed, a cavalry division is not a cavalry formation is not moving on the operational map. Think the big map. 
necessarily any faster than a infantry formation. Because horses can only charge for a few hundred yards. Right. And then the horse has to be walked. You have to get off. You have to walk the horse. You have to do all sorts of additional stuff Brush with it. Brush it out, yeah. Uh, and, well, it also, it's like you can't ride on the horse all day, every day, without crippling your horse. But what the cavalry does have is one tactical mobility. So if I'm got the, that cannon that's putting canister rounds into the infantry, I can cross 100 yards a heck of a lot faster on a horse than I can on foot, uh, particularly with my knees. Uh, but, the, but also what you can do is, is that uh, the a cavalry formation can have burst speed at the operational level, where if you don't care too much what they look like at the end, but the idea is to get them from A to B as quickly as humanly possible, Understanding the trade-offs you are now committing. Now we're talking horses here, but maybe to take a take a key city or a crossing. Right, or you can ride your uh, cavalry exceptionally hard, and you get that quick burst speed. Incidentally, some of these things still apply for mechanized formations too, because if anybody's ever taken a long road trip, if you just drive your car day in day out, the car is going to eventually break down. Now, a car can of uh, a tank. Can maybe go a little bit farther than a horse can before the horse has to get walked and watered and all that kind of stuff. You don't have to pet your tank, although it's uh, not discouraged either. <laughs> yeah, a part of the, uh, you're reminding me an aspect of uh, as as heavy cavalry, as I would call it, is used in coming out of a medieval period uh, into Napoleonic warfare and, and after. Uh, the requirement to increasingly uh, shape conditions for success, whereas maybe. You know, in medieval times, a, a company of mounted, heavily armored knights might not need that much shaping. They can just ride over the infantry if the situation's right. Later on, the the the, the lethality of the infantry musket and then rifle requires uh, uh, either a flank attack, artillery to to uh, set conditions, perhaps attacking with in, in conjunction with infantry, skirmishers, and the like. Um, as the, the horse becomes a much more uh, appetizing target for the infantry, especially in the defense. And by the way, that's the story of cavalry in the American Civil War, where in year one, uh, a lot of amateur infantry, a lot of inexperience, and you, have, you see some success with, with heavy cavalry charges. Uh, I personally studied the 8th uh, Texas Cavalry fighting for the Confederates and how early on uh, they have this bravado, they have a lot of uh, close combat weaponry they've brought with them from the Texas frontier, and they have a lot of success. There's there's quotes from these Union infantry commanders of the cavalry, quote, crashing down upon them, and they break, they run. By the end of the war, that's barely happening. The mm. infantry are better, and unless, unless it's a disorganized infantry unit on the move, cavalry is not charging them. Now, Colonel Jennings, you're bringing up an interesting point that I want to just kind of really pull out, is there's basically, in the uh, looking back on the history of cavalry, it was not something that people saw coming forward, is that you basically have a fork in history with the creation of the American uh, Republic. And what it is is that the... Uh, and it's not because it's a uniquely American invention, but it's because uh, how we come up as a nation is the European tradition. They had started before firearms really were a terribly big thing. So the idea of shot cavalry was embedded in the uh, in the organization, and that was how people expected to use cavalry. These are also big, rich nations for the most part, so they can afford cavalry divisions. 
the American Republic, uh, you know, in 1830s, what is that, like 40, 50 years after its founding, affords a whole two cavalry regiments, and they're actually dragoon regiments. But the American, but the uh, the kind of the split is the American cavalry tradition is born with firearms as a factor. So let's pull this apart and let's talk about some very basic concepts um, before we come, before we circle back to this point, right? Yeah. So from and and you're you're getting at the the divide point, right? Sometime in the 19th century, a lot of this changes, but from from the beginnings of organized warfare until then, until the industrial age. Uh, so for infantry, you basically have three kinds of infantry, right? You have missile troops, you have light troops, who may also be missile troops, and then you have heavy troops. Um, so think like like archers, if you're familiar with Greek armies, peltasts, and then spearthrowers. Right. Uh, with cavalry, you see kind of the same thing. You have heavy cavalry, which may, may wear armor, but they're on big horses. They're the shock force. You have light cavalry, which is lightly armored, uh, maybe, you know, might have a sword, might have some throwing weapons. And then you see a lot of forces in between, whether that's medium cavalry that can do both shock and other things, and, or what we would refer to now as dragoons, which is largely mounted infantry. Um, so that's kind of the basic breakdown of what they might be using for equipment and weapons. Uh, but, but before we dive more deeply into the history of it, let's talk about just the basic tasks of cavalry. So we've got this range of cavalry equipment, size of horses, training. Um, but what are all of the things that cavalry on horseback can possibly do? Let's start with that very basic foundation that you just laid out on horseback. Yes. Because that is a, and again, we're working off an American definition, particularly in more modern concepts, cavalry is not always fighting on horseback. In fact, really from its inception, American cavalry doesn't always fight on horseback. Right. But let's stay with on horseback. On horseback, it's the shock. Oh, let's start with the big stuff. The shock charge, right? The uh, the uh, charge of the Scots Greys at uh, at Waterloo, or most famously yeah. in European history, um, the largest cavalry charge in European history at the Great Siege of Vienna in the 1630s. 18,000 heavy cavalry. Murad is something similar. 15,000 heavy cavalry going straight through the Russian lines at Eylau in 1807. So big guys, big horses, armor. Right, physics. That that so that's a and a, typically what that is used to do is, as you pointed out, is that is typically held for a decisive point on the battle. It is meant to cause a penetration and basically so disorder the enemy's line as to cause them to crack and retreat. Um, alternatively, they can be used in a reconnaissance role. They can be used to go find the other guy because uh, we talked about that tactical, that tactical mobility, right? That guy is on his horse, and he can go he, and he can find things. And although a horse is a big thing, you can hide the horse, uh, or the horse can at least help you get away. Uh, and also, if you've got a group of your friends, that helps as well. All, uh, which you can uh, now con concurrent with that, uh, and this is where we start getting that's reconnaissance. The flip side of reconnaissance is security which is basically, uh, you could call it counter-reconnaissance. In fact, it's often called that. And Colonel Jennings, you can uh, kick me as we, as we go through here. Um, but the idea being is, is that one task of cavalry is to find the enemy. The other task of another task of cavalry is to keep the enemy cavalry from finding your people. Uh, so you end up in a kind of a battle and before a battle, so to speak, as cavalry uh, formations are kind of 
jousting, for lack of a better term, not actually jousting, but uh, you know, sparring back, uh, sparring back and forth uh, between the armies. Yeah, a little bit of shadow boxing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, well, t a couple terms that you often hear used, and I think they fit into these categories: um, scouting and screening. What's the difference, and what are you doing when you're screening? So scouting is the reconnaissance. That is, I'm going to find somebody or something. And uh, to use the modern do doctrinal terms, there's terrain focused and enemy focused. It's pretty straightforward. Keep it simple for the keep it simple for the cavalryman, right? Uh, terrain focused. I'm looking at something on the ground. I want to know: Is there a bridge there? How deep is the water? Can I get a cannon through here? Is it a good battlefield? Right. Enemy focus is where is the where are the bad guys? How strong are they? What do they have? Uh, are they spread out? Are they con that kind of thing? So that's scouting. That is reconnaissance. You can use them interchangeably. The doctrinal term is reconnaissance, but you say scouting, people know what you mean, unless you're talking about Boy Scouts, because uh, uh, they have adult supervision. And then the uh, the screening is a. Screening is a doctrinal is, an, is a modern doctrinal task, which means protect the main body from observation. However, the way you have used the term, uh, and this is where modern American doctrine differs a little bit from, say, Guibera era, is that we've kind of parsed out a lot of these things. Guibera would use screening in a more general concept that we would just call a general security operation. That is the term to keep the enemy's eyes off of you. Yeah, and what I, what I find interesting is uh, this is part of the modernization story of cavalry. So heavy emphasis early on shock charge, although I would, I would probably argue that recon and security has been part of the cavalry mission uh, since horses were used in warfare. But the proportion, the focus, and the investment, um, the, you know, what kind of horse are you going to, uh, horse herds are you going to invest in, training programs, uh, that has probably evolved in in proportion uh, as in as the lethality of the battlefield increases. So we can just look at the Crimean War, 1850s, the U.S. Civil War, 1860s, and then into the Prussian Wars uh, right afterwards and see the expense of the shock charge goes through the roof. And very quickly it's just not used. Um, the Charge of the Light Brigade is a glorious poem, not glorious for the men on their horses who died. Um, and so that, that's part of this story where uh, as, as warfare moderni modernizes and you have corps, field armies become the norm, and as they maneuver in position, those commanders now need eyes and ears in front of them more than they need a mounted arm that can somehow charge infantry with repeating and precision rifles that's very, uh, very unlikely to succeed. And so this is what we, we in the Army now called echelons above brigade cavalry. That's, that's some jargon for you. Uh, what it means is when I have a large formation with infantry, artillery, uh, I need someone in front to uh, both identify the enemy, terrain, to shape the conditions, because uh, that, that field army uh, may end up at the wrong battlefield, a, a site that's not advantageous. So think Lee, uh, Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia stumbling into Gettysburg because his field army level cavalry, Jeb Stewart's not there doing his recon for him, informing his maneuver and his approach. Um, so increasingly, that becomes the role of cavalry and then it is mechanized and, and really continues the same role. I just wanted to add, as we talked about the emergence of the American experience, um, 
So right off the bat, less shock charge because it's a firearm uh, battlefield, uh, but also the constabulary role. So right off the bat, the American Republic is conquering new lands as it moves west, wide spaces, uh, low density population. Uh, and so cavalry becomes uh, instrument of choice uh, to, we'll, uh, we'll say, both conquer and pacify and uh, sometimes protect peoples in these lands. Um, and then there's that tension where it's a, it, uh, it's a Panyurist Republic. How do you pay for that? But you really need it. And it's not till really after the Mexican War into the Civil War where they'll really just settle that. We, they have to have large numbers of cavalry and to you, do the you job. Talk, and you talked about the expense there because, I mean, horses, one, are not cheap animals. Either to buy, to maintain. The other thing, too, is is that there's also a training cost because, okay, so as a friend for an infantryman, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of training that goes into an infantryman, particularly when you look at uh, even people think 19th century uh, manual of arms. Oh, I've got to do a stand in a line and fire my musket. There's a lot of training of how to march, countermarch, face, do all those bits and pieces. In the cavalry, they're doing all of that, too. So you not only do you have to train that guy. you got to train the horse. Three years. You have to train the horse, and the horse uh, is almost as more dangerous than the rider if it's not trained because also you have to train 10 of them because horses get tired and mm -hmm. dead yeah and you have to train the right type yep so interesting anecdote in 1846 47 the u.s dragoons go south of the rio grande to support the u.s army's invasions of mexico and most of their their horses die uh the uh kind of eastern thoroughbreds can't handle the arid climate um Texan volunteers bring their hybrid horses down, and they actually survive and become uh, more effective. The The Mexican uh, army, what they're using, made for the environment. So that's part of the problem is you have to actually have the right kind of breed, the right kind of horse, the right size that uh, maybe needs less or more water um, to do the job. Yeah, and, and you guys are talking about a very important dichotomy that we often run into in, uh, in, in military history. Um, so for, for centuries, and arguably even for millennia, in Europe, going all the way back to the Greeks and Romans, cavalry has, has done the screening scouting stuff. They've also been a shock force, whether in classical Greek armies, kind of cavalry against cavalry, or the Alexander idea of the cavalry is the main effort. The infantry fixes, the cavalry um, penetrates and destroys. And, and that tradition continues well into the 19th century in European armies. The idea, again, infantry fixes, cavalry penetrates. And then once you add artillery, the artillery is just it's supporting both those roles. Um, they do develop, develop dragoons, but, but uh, a lot of times you see, like if, for example in my period, uh, 18th century France, dragoons are basically just more shock cavalry. They could do other things, but they're, they're not doing the thing where they ride from side to side and dismount. Um, the American tradition is very different. America does not ever develop cuirassier, heavy shock cavalry on horses, and that's an important distinction that we'll circle back to later. Um, in part because of what you're talking about, right? It's not just the immediate expense of buying a horse and training it. You have to breed these horses over generations. You have to have giant stud farms. Um, you have to have the right breeding stock. Napoleon ran into that problem. 
1813. His army is destroyed, fine. He can build another army. He can't rebuild his horses. And his also, horses are dead. And also you have to have the right opponent to use them against. Mm -hmm. As a, for instance, Napoleon, it, he's using a cavalry corps. Yep, corps-ish. Yep. Several divisions, a couple divisions. It's officially called a cavalry corps. Yeah, uh, it, and against his opponents, and that is thousands, one money runs are tens of thousands of horses. Yeah. The United States, uh, the United States has, again, two mounted regiments, and then we get the thir third regiment, the mounted regiment of mounted riflemen, which is really, as you said, more mo horse-mounted infantry. But the idea, of course, being who are they going to charge? We are the, the battlefield in Europe is you're fighting other similarly equipped formations. You're fighting, a, you're fighting blocks of 20,000 men. Yeah, a cuirassier charge works really well against a British a line of British infantry. Not so much against like Iroquois or Right. The 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 Apache are not going to sit there and politely wait for your charge to get all lined up and when and if, when you do charge, they're just going to skip they're going to scoot to the they're side. They're going to ride away and laugh at you. They're going to scoot to the side and wait for you to exhaust yourself and then come in and shoot you in the back. Yeah. Which is the intelligent way to fight that. <laughs> yeah. And so what what you guys are getting at is the big change that takes place as we move into the industrial era. We discover that, as, as you mentioned, Colonel Jennings, uh, weapon ranges get longer, they get easier to use, people are better educated, they're better fed. The infantry um, task becomes, in some ways, easier, right? You don't have to learn all these complicated march maneuvers to stay in formation as we approach the 20th century. Um, so during that period, is it fair to say that Europe and the other developed areas of the world start to look more like American cavalry, where they kind of push off the shock tax? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, the Western Front in World War I shock cavalry is almost completely absent. Um, and by World War II, generally we have cavalry and recon and security roles at echelon. World War I is an interesting case study. There's a, there's a great book called Cavalry Combat, and it was written by the American uh, Cavalry Association in the 1930s. And it is a series of vignettes, talks, battle analyses that they've compiled, and it's all done by European authors because there's very little American cavalry action in World War I. And it's all, but it's an American doctrinal analysis. And what's amazing is, is that it's a very condescending book in a lot of ways as they look at particularly the French and the German examples because they said you couldn't ever get these guys off their horses. Whereas the British cavalry had gone into the Boer War, the Anglo-Boer Wars, at the turn of the 20th century, committed to the arm, the arm blanc, uh, arm blanche. That's blanche. A, yeah, the idea behind the term arm blanche is that uh, cavalry is aristocratic and aristocrats wear white. Very, very good. Uh, but the idea of uh, you know using a saber or a lance uh, or something like that to cut people down. Well, what ended up happening is is the Boers, armed with Mausers, out accurate out to you know four, five hundred thousand yards, are just sitting in dug-in positions, picking them off their horses because the guy's a nice big target. The British cavalry very quickly figured out. Actually, a lot of Australian and New Zealander cavalry figured it out too. Still British at that point. Uh, depends on who you ask, but uh, but the idea being is is that you don't fight, is what you is the horse was important, but you didn't fight, you didn't stay that way. Now Americans are sitting here having fought the natives for any number of time, having gone through our own crucible in the American Civil War, 
And we kind of started with this concept. I mean, of course, the stereotypical example of the American cavalry is, of course, Buford at Gettysburg. It's a cavalry division armed with carbine rifles, so short, uh, short-barreled rifles with a short range, which you can load on a horse. That's why they're right. short. And uh, the idea being, and then he 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 moves to Gettysburg. He gets there ahead. He sets up a screen line, does his defense, and goes from there. But the whole battle, Buford's cavalry division. Fights dismounted almost the entire time, which is which is what what we would generally conceptualize as a dragoon action. Correct, and ride, then ride there, get off the horse. Right. In fact, our first two regiments are the first and second regiments of dragoons, which is why Colonel Jennings said I'm a, I was a member of the second dragoons. They still keep those names. I was a member of the third cavalry regiment, which was then renumbered the third cavalry regiment, but was known as the regiment of mounted riflemen. Mm-hmm. But the idea being is is that the Americans are looking at the Brits in the turn of the 20th century, going. Yeah, you're just now figuring this out. You know, guns kind of hurt. Yeah. Uh, whereas, so when you look at the world, the early World War One battlefield, where 1914 was one of the bloodiest years of the war, despite all the horror, and there, don't get me wrong, the horrors of the Western Front were, were many and numerous, but the maneuver portions of the war were actually the bloodiest parts. And they're watching the French and the Germans in particular, and the Brits have figured out, you still use mounted warfare, because you can still do a charge against disordered troops, but the Germans and the French are still trying to do lancer charges or uh, cuirassier charges, and they're getting slaughtered. Into ordered troops. Into ordered troops. American cavalry doctrine, uh, cavalry drill regulations 1911, one of the very first written down manuals is, first off, they keep the, the stirrup to stirrup charge in there, but it's like the sop, like no one, it's like, because it looks cool, right? You know, everyone, you know, thinks about, you know, waving the saber and charge it, but it's a sop. The American cavalry charge doctrinally, really from the Civil War forward, if not before, is what Colonel Jennings described with the, uh, which is, they, they called it charge and forager. So spread out with a pistol, and uh, by the turn of the 20th century, it's a semi-automatic pistol, 19, uh, uh, Colt 1911 for the most part. And it's funny, it's in the doctrinal man, it says, aim well to the left of the horse's head. And the idea being is, is that you're steering the horse with your knees, you're perhaps using the left arm to do something, and you're aiming across your body to kind of stabilize your body. And so this is, interestingly, that they use the term that comes from the Prussians, which they use the French pickup, the, this charge in foragers. Um, and, and as we move into the war, you're also talking about another task the cavalry performs, which is pursuit. Um, so a, a broken army, uh, a tactical operational level, they can turn a, a defeat into a rout. But we're also moving into the age when we get to World War One of machines, right? And this is where we really start to trade off the horse, where cavalry separates itself from the horse, which you pointed out earlier. So let's let's talk about some basic terms before we dive into details, right? Explain the difference, if you would, between armor, motorized, and mechanized. Okay, so generally when you say armor, you're talking about tanks, uh, different kinds of tanks, although mostly we see main battle tanks, the big, the big heavies uh, on today's battlefields. Uh, and so arm, armor really s- refers to the tank, which is the centerpiece of the armor formation usually. Um, motorized is on wheels. So it could be an armored truck on wheels, a troop carrier on wheels, uh, but really rubber tires is uh, what you're talking about. And then finally mechanized, that usually uh, means some kind of uh, troop carrier or fighting vehicle for infantry. Um, infantry could ride around in it, then use the weapon on top as kind of a giant machine gun, and then get out, their squads get out of the back and will go assault on foot, 
Uh, and it's actually one of the most versatile um, kind of forces in the, in the history of warfare, actually. Um, and so the Bradley fighting vehicle um, is, is what the U.S. Army uses. Um, we're seeing it at play in Ukraine a little bit now. Um, and so uh, ideally, those uh, three types will work together. And again, they have different advantages and disadvantages for each. Uh, tanks obviously have the, the highest levels of protection and firepower, maybe not the most mobility, depending on what bridge is in front of you, and it's, it's a load-bearing capacity. Um, motorized infantry that we mentioned, you know, trucks generally, generally require less maintenance. Um, that's why we used MRAPs in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan so much, because you could drive them long distances, and basically it's just like a truck. Um, and then finally, and, the and also we see um, it particularly less well-funded forces use a lot of what we call technicals, basically mm -hmm. pickup trucks with weapons. Yeah, the, the Toyota pickup truck. You bolt a, a heavy yeah. machine gun to the back, and and that's that's the cheap man's uh, motorized infantry. And then finally, uh, mechanized infantry. As I said, I can a lot of the same advantages of of tanks and armor, uh, but you have uh, some additional. Um, uh, additional assault capability and complex restricted terrain with, with the infantrymen that get out. The quick cheat sheet is motorizes wheels, mechanized as tracked in the modern usage. In the 1920s and 30s, those terms are used except are interchangeably because people are still figuring out what the heck they're talking about. So you've taken us where I want to go with this, which is World War One is kind of the death of the, of the horse cavalry, right? Not, not fully, but, but by and large, we're never going to see Murat again after 1914, right? We're not going to see massed horse infantry charging into prepared, or excuse me, horse cavalry charging into prepared infantry. By the, at the yes, sort of. And, and here's why, is, is that there's a couple of ca cases where that doesn't hold up. Uh, for instance, uh, Australian light horse uh, at Beersheba mm. uh, uh, mm -hmm. do an attack there. However, they got lucky. That it, one they got lucky. <laughs> uh, two, that was also that was that was shot in as a fact. That was that was a, a case study. The other reason why I want to be very careful drawing a very specific chalk snapping as a very specific chalk line is in the 1920s. The uh, what will be, the Soviet Union the will, war, yeah. will fight a war with yeah. the Poles, and that is a swirling cavalry battle at that time frame. Generally, yes. Okay. World War One sees the the death knell of the stirrup to stirrup horse cavalry charge. Okay, so now we have uh, let's let's put the number a little bit later. Let's say mid nineteen twenties, right? Uh, now we have a bunch of cavalry people who are very wedded to their horses, as horse people tend to be. Um, there's a, this long tradition of American officers playing polo to determine their skills in the, in the inner warrior's army. Okay, so cavalry people know that the old style, particularly European style of horse warfare is dead. We now have all these new capabilities, whether they're, they're you know, motors, tracks, guns, artillery, of course, is now the big killer. So how does artillery, tr excuse me, how does cavalry transition from the old horse traditions into this new era of industrialized warfare with these motorized, mechanized, and armor capabilities. This is an interesting story, and everyone's going to say there's a, there's a couple different answers. So let's start with the American tradition. The American tradition is is that I'm going to I'm going to make acquisition based upon what is my mission set. 
The American cavalry's mission set in the 1920s and 30s is border security along the Mexican border. Because Mexico at this point yeah. is in the middle of, um, let's call it, some trouble. Yes. Uh, there's the punitive expedition, which occurs in 1917, but that's not the only thing going on. So that's where the bulk of the cavalry is. So you're not driving tanks across the Rio Grande in that case? No. All, and additionally, a horse makes a heck of a lot of sense for patrolling parts of the border. I think all three of us are Texans. Uh, and there are parts of the Rio Grande Valley and in Big Bend, for instance. And European countries are still using horses for colonial yeah. constabulary operations. Uh, remember, even though that you have now these these versions of tanks and, and armored cars, but they're not very reliable. It's going to take decades before you could do... So imagine you're on the frontier in Africa or South Asia or East Asia, and you're doing continuous year-by-year -year operations, and the vehicles just won't last. So it might be cheaper there to still keep breeding horses. Just breed horse. You have local supply, uh, and so it's going to be those, those horses. Those units will use horses actually for a long time into World War II. And and what you'll see a lot of the times is that a horse. Okay, horses prefer actually no kidding fodder, like, uh, you know, real hay and all that kind of stuff. However, they can exist off the land for short periods of time. They can eat grass. Right. Texas has got, West Texas has lots of oil underneath it, but you can't, you know, stick a hose into the ground and, and siphon it into your tank. Tank's not very good at eating grass. Uh, no. But, but as you get into the 1930s, as the vehicles become better, more reliable, higher speeds, um, you know, we could look at, we could start with the, the Renault in World War One, the French small tank really designed to do the functions of cavalry in many ways. It's just, uh, it's a fast tank for its time, but but zero, very low battlefield speed. Right, so these World War One tanks might go four miles an hour. Yeah. By the time we get to the mid-1930s, they, they go modern car speeds, right? They can go 60 miles an hour, generally slower, but they can Think think twenty to thirty miles an yeah. hour. Uh, but the the idea the idea also with these uh, vehicles too is is that armored car people are the because cavalry particularly American cavalry but British as well in World War One they come up with this idea of called an armored car which is basically it's bolt armor to a car basically yeah uh, put a machine gun on top call it good and what they realize is that actually works pretty well. The problem, and this is, and the Americans noticed this first, is the problem with an armored car and even a light tank is that you lose all of the ability. Because another nice thing is, is that an infant, a cavalryman, when he jumps off his horse, is a very hard person to kill individually. He he can he can flatten himself. He can get into cover, which is why you generally shoot at the horse. Right, and uh, so he can uh, so he can do the he can protect himself. He can also get into terrain where a vehicle can't go. He can climb a hill. He can get he can get into trees. He can do all these kinds of things. So when they realize is that I don't want to have just armored cars because everything that makes that armored car worth the cost is the radio, the machine gun, and the armor. Well, the instant I jump out of that, I'm out of, I'm just leaving my vehicle behind. And the enemy has a brand new armored car. And uh, or uh, you know or I stay inside it, but then I might die because. I can't see around me because armored vehicles have notoriously poor peripheral vision. Because they have armor. Right. So the idea is, is that the American cavalry comes up with the idea of mixing and matching horse cavalry with armored cars. The armored cars are basically a flying column, basically to go out in front and do just reconnaissance. Just find the bad guys. And then they've got the speed, because they can outrun a horse. 
and they've got armor, so if they bump into something and somebody shoots them, they, you know, it's better than a Mark One but shirt. It, but it's not the old shock cavalry idea. No, this is the idea of the idea. The armor is there to protect me from somebody ambushing me, so that then I can come back and tell my big brother, the the horse cavalry squadron, to go kill that guy. Well, that lasts for a while until we start, as Colonel Jenks pointed out, technology starting to get better. And the other problem is, is the cavalry is experimenting with combat cars because a, a particularly American quirk is by the National Defense Act of 1920, tanks belong to the United States Infantry. Therefore, cavalry are not legally allowed to own car tanks. Now it might look like a tank, it might squawk like a tank, it might walk, it might drive like a tank, it might but have it's a main a, gun. But it, but it's a combat car. Right. Yeah, and I. I like where you're getting at this uh, this eternal tension between mobility, firepower, protection. Every lieutenant who goes to the American Armor School uh, at Fort uh, Moore, Georgia, um, learns it's about true home is Fort Knox. And <laughs> versus back in the in the days uh, of Napoleonic cavalry, cavalry, obviously armor and you know strike power was a premium. Fast forward to today, actually, you may not want your heaviest tanks in the cavalry. If it's doing recon and security, that could become a liability. The M1 Abrams, premier uh, battle tank, uh, has uh, a lot of issues with crossing some uh, some bridges, especially uh, on unanticipated battlefields with smaller uh, smaller bridges, rivers that have to be crossed. It, it uh, weighs 70 tons? 70, 80. Um, and so that's that's why early on, uh, maybe maybe Bill could talk to us about mechanized cab groups as kind of the prototype for this medium grade uh, cavalry force working to uh, in, uh, working ahead of corps and field armies to inform their maneuver. So you 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 bring out something that I, I think is worth asking: um, Are tanks cavalry? They can be. They can be in the cavalry, and that's where what Bill talked about. A, a mission set is a better description of what it's doing, um, and, and indeed, we we the U.S. Army had a long history of, and we still have a history of including our main battle tank in the cavalry formation. But it's not alone. We also have cavalry fighting vehicles with them. For we have Humvees in some of our cavalry units, so motorized scouts, and that really gives a lot of uh, really uh, tools in the toolbox. For commanders to use because when I when I look at this from a, a European history perspective, to me, armor in let's say World War II, right? It's it's the the um, shock force, the penetration force, and followed up by the other arms. That looks a whole lot like old style European shock mm -hmm. cavalry. It's on an operational level yeah. rather than tactical, although it works on a tactical level. Is that the right way to look at it? That it's just a continuation, possibly. Uh, the, the, my contention would be that an armored division really is a new critter, as opposed to you know the the old the old uh, trinity, right? Armor, infantry, uh, artillery. Right. Not armor. Excuse me, I'm just getting it myself. Cavalry, infantry, artillery. So what you're saying then is that that you know Napoleon's cavalry commander Murat, he may not necessarily recognize an armored division's capabilities or use. He he would uh, he would look at a tank battalion and see a lot of uh, see a lot of similarities, but I don't know. But the problem is is that he 
the fire the the firepower at range is where, where is where where we get him, and I think that's kind of the key distinction. Right, because but, you can't park a horse and use it as a mobile gun turret. Then I think some of the the basic building blocks would be familiar. Uh, so the U.S. Army has uh, has for long periods had division division cavalry squadrons. So this is a squadron that works for the for the division commander and does its recon uh, ahead of the brigades. Um, the assault brigades, and we're kind of going back to that, and so that would be the recon function. Uh, the armored brigades, which are really just assault formations, that um, might replace some of the the older infantry and cuirassier forces, and then of course we still have cannon artillery, which they would instantly recognize, doing the uh, preparatory fires and the shaping conditions. So. I, I think some of the mechanics do translate. So the armor is still the hammer, basically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now the armor, if you look at the old armored division patch, which the first armored division is still part of in the United States Armor School, it's red for artillery, it's yellow for cavalry, and there's blue for infantry. Uh, combines and, all the colors. And there's other carryovers. Uh, the Abrams is a thirsty beast. Mm -hmm. Just like in older times, the, hor the horse units were the most expensive to maintain. Same consideration, you might want to have more armor, you have to be able to pay for it. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be able to sustain it. And by the way, this comes back to uh, expeditionary context, something that the British uh, dealt with, why they, they actually more and more adopted the Dragoon model. Uh, heavy cavalry was difficult to put on wooden sailing ships, send across the world, Horses and then don't maintain. Like the ocean. Versus a more versatile Dragoon model, you have a lot of economy of savings. I can send that, and it can do a lot of jobs. Now that said, personally, I don't think Marat would understand. He, I think he'd look at an uh, at an armored brigade combat team and have a heart, or even take a uh, armored cavalry squadron out of um, a BCT, like first squadron, first cavalry, which is uh, forty one Bradleys and fourteen tanks. He'd look at that and wouldn't quite know what to make of that. Because Be it's of the task organization as opposed uh, to... Well, no, it's more along the lines of the idea of how these organizations fight. Because he's used to, I'm going to take my cavalry, I'm going to wait for the opportune moment, I'm going to mass all of them together, and I'm going to punch the enemy in the face or the flank. That's, that is, a cavalry squadron can do that. In fact, that's what the tank, one of the things the tank company can does, can do. But it's going to be, it's going to be using a lot more maneuver, fire and maneuver as we go through. That said, I would say that, uh, I think his first name is John Buford, uh, but uh, Buford from yep. 1863. The Dragoon Commander. A Dragoon Commander. Uh, he would call himself a cavalry commander, but yes, he would. I think a Texas Ranger would look at a uh, heavy cavalry squadron and see that as a and a lot of what it comes down to is I really think that there is that dividing line between cavalry using firearms as an integral part of their uh, of their kit, which Murad didn't do because his men generally did not use firearms; they used sabers. There's also another aspect of the modernizing function that we neglected, and that's the rise of indirect fires. So, starting with World War I, basically, it's used before that, but that's when it becomes the mainstay. The Cav Scout, the, the, cav the horse or foot cavalry doing reconnaissance, has access to a whole suite of fires that previously did not. You know, pr in previous eras, it's what he brought with him in his hands or on it strapped to his horse. Or particularly, now, or, or po possibly horse, horse or, artillery. 
or or and that's the rise of mobile yeah. batteries and and of course um but fast forward to to world war one the invention of the three-dimensional battlefield gridded uh maps uh the cav scout now has access to uh just uh, massive artillery fires behind him via radio and let's talk about the kind of the last piece in the evolution of cavalry to the present um, which is in the, the second half of the 20th century, post-World War II, the rise of rotary wing aircraft, helicopters. So how does the inclusion of the helicopter in more modern armies again change the organization and deployment of cavalry? Yeah, so airborne, we could say that of, of many aspects of airborne ISR, definitely... Sorry, ISR. Uh, uh, intelligence, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Surveillance, right. reconnaissance. Um, has definitely taken over many of the functions of the old light cavalry. Um, not totally, uh, but satellites in the sky, helicopter reconnaissance, all of those can move farther, faster, see, see a wider spectrum. Uh, but there still remains one thing that, uh, to my mind, only um, armored cavalry on the ground can do, and that's forceful reconnaissance. Okay, that's the one thing that our heavy cav squadron in the U.S. Army Nothing else, and you could maybe say some of the Marine uh, LAV units, but really it's the ability to do aggressive, high-tempo reconnaissance that really pressures the enemy, uh, push through the defenses. Um, and that's, that's a unique thing that the U.S. Army brings, by the way, to most uh, coalition forces. So, dumb question. Why do you have to have the ground cavalry force versus just sending a bunch of Apache attack helicopters? Uh, because... Uh, First of all, cavalry is an all-weather force, so you can send them out and they can advance pretty much in any kind of weather, um, despite how difficult it may be, uh, but you get that durability of being on the ground uh, and also um, pr uh, really finding out where is the enemy strong and weak. Sometimes you don't know until you really push against them. And, and, and an Apache, is a, first off, it's a great weapon system. However. It's a fragile weapon system. I mean, it's armored. So, if but we it's play a helicopter. Video games, it's it. We might call it a glass cannon. It's very powerful, but it's also kind of squishy. Uh, yeah, it's one of those that require. Uh, so, you you want to be very careful how you use them. The other problem that you run into with an with any aviation asset is is that quite frankly, you can hide from them on the ground. Uh, Taking an, an aviation asset, whereas if you put a ground unit on the ground, I can look underneath that tree. I and, can dig into that hole. And additionally, just as far as information collection, an Apache may not be able to tell you the low bearing capacity of a river across the Rhine mm -hmm. in 1944. Uh, the Apache can't interrogate, excuse me, question civilians <laughs> on the battlefield uh, and send that information back to the, the higher commander to inform decisions. But one thing that Colonel Jennings mentioned that I really want to highlight to folks is that people tend to think of reconnaissance as, I just find the enemy. I don't have to fight. I just have... And, uh, this it's it's in, the, in Gettysburg, the movie Gettysburg. It's the spy Harrison looking at yeah. the Barbies. And, the, and, they, and they think that that's what reconnaissance is, and that's all that is. So you can equip a force, be very lightly equipped. Think Hussars, right? Hussars typically, and you can tell me how, how wrong I am, uh, but typically are not found on the main battlefield in the Napoleonic battle because their job is on the flanks. to it's called the petite gear, outside yeah. the main battle. Right. Well, that works right up until it doesn't, you know, uh, the, which is... The lightest screen will stop that. Right. So the problem is, is that if you come across even another enemy scout 
much less somebody who is there on a security mission to prevent you from uh, coming on there. They're not going to wave merrily at you and wish you well on scouting out their uh, their friends. They're going to try very hard to kill you. Yeah, you're, so now you're getting into another thing that American cavalry, I would say, specializes in, and that's counter-recon. So if I can, if my reconnaissance forces can deprive the enemy of theirs, I've blinded the enemy commander, created uh, a fog of war for him to have to, to see through, um, and that's another asymmetric advantage I've gained for my side. And that goes back to the trade-offs. I need, I may need more direct fire capability to win that scout versus scout contest. Um, who has the better artillery? Um, I just can't emphasize enough that the role of the modern cavalry scout is uh, the number one weapon system is your radio. That's what they tell us. They tell young scouts in their initial training. Uh, and the goal is actually to not be seen. If you can use your artillery, uh, destroy the enemy in front of you without ever being discovered, you can then continue to uh, advance and continue to rob the enemy commander of their clarity. Which Mira would not recognize at all. Right. And because uh, it's also, and it's the security element, but it's one of these cases where it's not like there's a security force and a reconnaissance force. Uh, most of the time, they're the same mm -hmm. organization. Because, again, when you're out in front of the main body looking for the bad guys, it doesn't really matter whether you found their main body or their scout. Hopefully, you are seeing you see without being seen, but hope not being a method. You've got to be able to survive that contact and kill the other side. In fact, that's the only time going back to like early 20th century American cavalry manuals. That's the only time they advise a mounted charge and is against other enemy cavalry. And that's why we include heavy battle tanks in cavalry formations, really for for that purpose. And and what you see is is that uh, and also. The other thing that you can do with cavalry is is that it's not just you come up against the enemy and you say, hey, there they are. Because if they've got any sort of uh, forward outpost line, you just stop there. You haven't done anything. Any plan can be within reason, right? Within So if it's not like, you know, like, uh, you know, like um, Thermopylae or something like that. But it, like any defense or any attack can be defeated with enough information with reasonably decent odds. The problem is getting that information because the other side is not going to just happily give it to you. Mm -hmm. But what you can also do is, is that you can also make the enemy go down what we call their decision support matrix, which is basically, think of it as a series of if-then statements. If this happens, then I do this. If this happens, then I do this. And it's a branching series of uh, things. And every army, we call it something different, but really it's just basic human nature. I only have there are only so many ways to skin this cat on this battlefield. This is how I'm going to do it. Well, the more you can make the enemy go down that chain without committing your main body, your main body can now uh, engage in like, oh, they're going to come down this path and they've got to come down this way because they, where the cavalry made them commit in a certain way. So in, in a way, we haven't come too far from Napoleon where what you're, what you're concluding is that modern cavalry is designed to force the enemy to make decisions just like Napoleon would always try to force his enemy to make mistakes. Right. I mean, the the, the Auschwitz campaign in 1805, in, uh, we, we share a, a Napoleonic uh, professor, uh, Dr. Michael Legere at UNT. Uh, but, you know, I, I was reading the book and I was, uh, on Auschwitz. I'm like, oh, Napoleon won the security fight. And, uh, 
it was very clear. Now it wasn't quite that clean cut, but Napoleon was able to establish reconnaissance dominance early, mm-hmm. to the point where they didn't know the Allies didn't know exactly where he was, and they only knew what he showed them, which allowed him to set the conditions for that battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if I, I would offer, if you want to see what probably peak modern cavalry looks like, look at the American Army Order of Battle in the late nineties, late nineteen nineties. You have dedicated cavalry formations at corps, division, brigade, and battalion levels. Commanders at every echelon have their own cavalry to do their own uh, uh, reconnaissance and security with, to act as their their eyes and ears. Um, And that speaks to uh, a very aggressive expeditionary army that has to go fight on other people's territory that you're not familiar with, and you have to go on offense. Um, So I I would commend that if you want to see what the complete kind of modern architecture looks like. All right, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating discussion. It sounds like despite largely losing their horses, cavalry is still a very important part of modern armies. Dr. Nance, Colonel Jennings, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.